Ramble. If I offered you two different pairs of jeans and I told you that you can only wear one of them, you could probably decide in two seconds. But what if I offered you a thousand pairs of jeans and they're all slightly different and I said you can only wear one of these for the next 12 months straight. This will be your go-to pant of choice. What are you going to do? How do you even start to choose? That's exactly what I felt like when I was combing through thousands of listings whenever we were moving to a new apartment. I would spend hours a day stressing about, is this apartment in a good neighborhood? Is it going to accommodate my dogs? Does it fit my budget? I didn't know any of these. And the worst part is most of the listings didn't even tick all of my boxes. That is why Apartments.com is your best place to look for your new home. Apartments.com lets you filter your search based on whether you have pets, if you want a balcony, built-in AC, whatever it is that you're looking for. The website remembers your search so that you don't have to keep filtering every time you come back. And Apartments.com has more rental listings than anywhere else, meaning no matter how specific your needs are, they got you. And your instant alerts mean that you can spend less time online looking for the perfect place and more time doing you. So if you're looking for a new place to call home, head over to Apartments.com, apartments.com, the place to find a place. Bada bing, bada boom. Welcome to this week's main episode, and we are back on schedule for two episodes a week, so we're back at him, and I'm just going to drop you in to today's crime. Let's talk about Joe, a guy named Joe. I mean, you're thinking, what an average Joe. Not this one. No, no, he was quite the opposite, or at least he thought that he was. He thought that he's not average. Mediocre, that's not his style. He feels like whatever he wants in life, he's going to get it. Why? Not because he's qualified, not because he deserves it, but because he wants it. That's reason enough. He doesn't like blending into the crowd. He wants to be tough. He wants to stand out. He wants people to literally shake in fear when they place their eyeballs on him. Joe's a piece of work. He and his friends, they're all kind of like that. They even call themselves the black and white gang. They're always going to have each other's backs. They're always sitting around talking about, oh, if you get into a fight, I'm going to jump in and I'm going to kick it. You know, they're like those types of guys. They just got everything with each other. They did everything together. And so that night when Joe saw that ring that had a giant E on it, that piece of jewelry, that ring with the E, like elephant, right? He knew he had to have it because Joe's girlfriend's name is Esther. He's like, well, guys, I got to give this to my girlfriend, Esther. I mean, she's going to love it. It's going to be a romantic gesture. So sentimental. I mean, am I the best boyfriend or what? And so he leans over and takes it off the dead girl's hands. Oh, my God. His friends high five each other and the six of them walk back home, leaving the two teenage girls dead bodies in the woods. It's going to be a rough one today. And this one is going to be really intense because there is a lot at play. I mean, is the system wrong? Is the judicial system wrong? Is this really justice? What, what about capital punishment? Because this is going to be an unprecedented case in Texas. So the full source list is always available at RottenMangoPodcast.com. But we have another book I want to recommend. It's called Pure Murder by Corey Mitchell. This book is... Oh my God, it's so well written. It's thoroughly researched. It gets into literally every nitty gritty detail. So, I mean, it does get quite graphic. I'm just going to give you a warning, but they do a great job at making you feel the emotions of the victims' families. Just, you just get wrecked. I don't know how to explain it other than you're on a roller coaster. The author is actually a law school graduate and he has a ton of really good true crime books. Uh, Dead and Buried is actually one of my favorites of his. He's a Texas native. The crime takes place in Houston, Texas. So there's also a lot of like setting, you know, descriptions and you just envision every part of it and it, it's crazy. So let's get into the story. What are the chances that you cross paths with the devil? 
a truly evil person. Maybe you're not religious. You're like, well, I don't know what the devil is. Just someone that's pure evil. Someone who kills for the joy of it. Maybe it's not even a serial killer. Maybe it's just a murderer. I mean, what are the odds, right? So I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to Google it. I Google it. What are the odds that I run into a serial killer? They don't really have statistics on that. How can you find statistics on that? But here is what a lot of people came up with. Close to 14,000 people were murdered in the U.S. in 2020. That's a lot. So that's 14,000 new murders, we can assume, because statistically, it's unlikely that these are a bunch of serial killers in the mix. So, like, let's Uh just be fair. Let's say it's 13,000 new murders entering the scene in 2020. The FBI, their, you know, clearance rate is only 61% for murders. So that means 40% of these new murderers are going to stay free people. 61% 61% you said? Yeah, so these 39% of murders are going to be free, which mm-hmm. that's about 5,200 people, right? Let's just do some guesswork. Nothing too crazy because these are bullshit statistics. We're just gathering a bunch of statistics that are true and trying to see what are the odds that you run into a murderer. Mm-hmm. There's going to be no actual, or at least no math that I can do. It's <laughs> <laughs> way above my pay grade. Listen, I suck at math, okay? <laughs> um, so that's not even including the ones that are still free as murderers. Because think about the 39% that weren't arrested in 2019, in 2018, 2017, yeah. and so on and so forth. And the, the age that people usually get arrested for murder is around 28 years old. That's it? So if you're not caught, think about how many more oh years you're God. living amongst society. Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah. So according to Andrew Brown on Quora.com, his answer got 31 million views on how likely it is to encounter a murderer. He claims that there's probably around 400,000 murderers who are currently free living amongst us. So depending on where you live, that's one in every 250 people or one in every 2,500 people. And it seems incredibly unavoidable to not meet a murderer in your lifetime. Even if you live your entire life in a low crime area, you know, because socioeconomics are huge in this and in this case. Wow. So for some people, it may be you meet one every 42 years. Some it's 42 a year, depending on where you live. But I think what's really interesting about this, right, about these fake statistics that we took out of real statistics is the fact that it just depends on where you live. Yeah. And I feel like a lot of the cases that we cover, we're like, oh, my God, middle class crime. Can you believe it? Like a middle class perfect family killed each other. We got to talk about it because it could have been you. It could have been me. It could have been her down the street. But what about inner cities? What about the areas that are just raging with gang violence, that are just not doing well, that our you know, government is not really putting a lot of resources into? What about those areas? And what about the kids in those areas? I mean, this is going to be a really, really intense story. So I'm just going to drop you in. There's a lot of people at play. The first guy we're talking about, because there's like six, <laughs> his name is Raul Omar Villarreal. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I'm sorry, but he was born into a really good family. I know. Yeah. What? He was born into. Th- listen, they didn't have a lot of money. They didn't live in the good part of town, but they had food on the table. They taught their kids manners. The stay at home mom, she was dedicated. I mean, Raul just had amazing parents. His childhood was probably just mundane. Nothing spectacular, not memoir worthy, which is a good thing. But then in high school, Raul started getting bullied. Mm. People were like, why are you always wearing the same things? Why are your clothes so beat up? What's going on? Why do you have pit stains? You don't wash your clothes? Why are you wearing hand-me-downs? Didn't your brother wear that? Like, just really, really freaking rude, right? So he keeps telling his mom, mom, I don't want to go to school anymore. All they do is bully me. Like, it's just embarrassing. Mm -hmm. Why can't I just work with dad? 
So his dad was working fixing ACs and appliances, you know, and mm -hmm. it's just really intensive labor work. And he's like, we need the extra money. Think about it, mom. Okay. We need the extra money. I can get maybe like a, some sort of technician degree. I can work with my dad. I can put food on the table. Come on. That's better than high school. She's like, absolutely not. No, you're not going to drop out of high school. That's not okay by me. I worked my ass off to raise you. You're going to graduate. But 15-year-old Raul put his foot down and he dropped out anyway. I mean, he had been held back multiple times. So at this point, he was only in the seventh grade, mm. essentially, right? Okay. So he stopped going to school, stopped going to church, started doing this super intense labor work. And every single paycheck, he would give his parents 40% of it. Wow. But his parents just never wanted him to do this. They're like, we still want you to get your GED. Yeah. But I think this is a situation where, I mean, he's looking at everyone that graduates public school in his area in this, you know, kind of not the great part of Houston. He's thinking, wow, they graduate and they're probably making less money than me. So why would I go through that? Why would I get my GED? That doesn't make sense. I mean, a lot of these kids were just growing up in environments where they don't really see hope in the future. The odds of them getting into college for them, they're like, that's not going to happen. And even then, what's the point? And everyone really seemed to like Raul. I mean, women even turned him down. One of them said, you know, I like you, but I just want someone more aggressive. You're just like the perfect gentleman. You're just not fun enough. You're too shy. He got dumped for being too boring and too nice. So he starts getting a little frustrated, right? Now his sisters, they go into nursing school. So he's like, okay, why don't I try this? Why don't I become a nurse? You know, you make good money. So he applies, gets in, starts studying, bonds with his whole family during this. I mean, he's hardworking. He's quiet. He's pleasant. People thought that he had so much potential. But immediately after graduation, for whatever reason, nobody would hire him. They would hire his sisters, even his mom, but nobody would hire him. And he started getting so depressed. So he gets bored. Now, he's still a teenager, right? Now, in this part of town, if you're bored as a teenager, that's going to lead you down dangerous paths. And that's exactly what he does. He starts doing drugs, drinking, sniffing Texas shoe shine, like the local shoe shining spray to get high. So he starts hanging out with a guy by the name of Efrain Perez. Now, they had known each other for the past five years, lived on the same street, recently started hanging out. So they're like, I can't believe we never hung out for the past five years. This guy, Efrain, has a rough childhood, much rougher than Raul's. I mean, his parents, since the day he was born, were constantly at each other's throats. They divorced, and Efrain's mom marries another man. And she decides, well, I don't really think I can take care of you, child. So why don't you go to my sister? So he goes and lives with his aunt. And then all of a sudden, his mom would be like, you know what? I just broke up with my boyfriend. So why don't you come back and live with me? I'm kind of lonely. So then he would go back with his mom. And then she'd be like, you know what? I got a new boyfriend. So why don't you skedaddle with your sister or with my aunt again? So it was just back and forth. I mean, he's ping ponging back and forth. Now, with his aunt Doria, he was getting a lot more stability. He had a curfew, discipline, but he enjoyed it. Like, he never was upset that he had a curfew. He loved it. He did well in school, hung out with, honestly, like, the nerdier kids. Like, he was in band and stuff. Mm -hmm. All the band people writing me hate emails right now, <laughs> instantly in this moment. I love you, okay? My sister was in band. <laughs> that doesn't mean anything that means absolutely nothing <laughs> no i'm just saying i know the hard work that you put into it okay she used to have messed up toes because she was in the marching band 
Okay. She could have had a completely different career ahead of her. <laughs> okay. So, you know, he does well in school, never gets in trouble. But with his mom, he's a completely different person. Just flips a switch. All he would do is skip classes. And the teachers would try to call his mom, but she would never call them back. She wouldn't even <laughs> pick up. She's like, nope, I'm not getting involved. So then he had a best friend by the name of Joe. Okay. Joe Medellin, right? Now, his dad was a hard worker. His mom was a really dedicated stay-at-home mom. So again, you've got this really nice family set up. And she knew that the only way to be successful, successful in the U.S., because they were immigrants, was to learn English. So this guy's disciplined. There's a lot of love in the house. I mean, he had this younger brother by the name of Uni that becomes important later. Always looked up to him. They would hang out a lot. Everything was good till middle school. Joe just flipped a switch. Something happened and he started cursing out teachers, getting expelled. He would tell teachers straight in the face how he's going to become famous one day. He's going to be all over the news, all over the papers. Yeah, why? I'm going to kill a cop. What? Oh my God. That's what you want to do in life? Like you, who even sets that as a goal? What's wrong with you, right? So then we've got, you know, Ephraim and Joe. Do we know what happened to him? To Joe? Yeah, you say he just flipped the switch and... So it seems like his mom got a job. Like, that's the only thing that I can find. Mm. Is that his mom used to be a stay-at-home mom, but she got a job to supplement income for the family. That's it. And he just became and he really just rebellious. went crazy. I think he also got involved with the wrong crowds in school, right? Uh, but I mean, to flip a switch like that is just insane. So Ephraim and Joe, they would sit around and they'd be like, okay, listen, we're bored. What should we do? Let's go steal a car. Walmart? Nah, you want to go to the Target parking lot? They got some nice cars. Nah, let's go to a church and just steal cars. So they started stealing church vans, like just choir people cars. I don't know. This just feels like some (laughs) sinner activity. I'm not even religious, but this feels like a sin, you know? Yeah. It's just so intense. Then they would get pulled over. Then they would get arrested. And the whole time they weren't even scared. They would look bored, if anything. And the cops are like, do you know why I pulled you over? Because you literally stole a car. Mm-hmm. They're like, yeah, are you going to write me a ticket or? So the cops are thinking to themselves, like, we usually give these kids talks, right? Because they're still underage. They're minors. There's no point in arresting them. I mean, it doesn't even work. Usually you just do the whole show. You put on the handcuffs. You put them in the back of the squad car. It's like scared straight. You're like, kid, don't ever straighten up. Get your act together or else you're going to turn out like that guy over there. But they're like, that's not even going to work for these kids. Let's not even do that. So even the cops, they didn't even try to do that. They said, all right, well, we're going to drop you off at home. Mm, I feel like there is something <laughs> wrong, wrong with that Yeah, attitude. very wrong. I mean, you're going to see it gets increasingly worse, right? So instead, almost immediately after, right, there's a couple by the name of Greg and Kathleen. They go to a local bowling alley. So their nephew is like this little bowling champion. I mean, imagine having a bowling champion in your house, right? Actually? Yeah. No, in the community, in that bowling alley, in that bowling lane specifically. (laughs) Okay. Okay, so they go and watch him play. And when they get back out, they thought they're going crazy. No, you said you you parked the car here. No, I'm telling you, I parked the car here. I parked right next to this car. No, you didn't. You parked the car over there. We got to go over there. And they're like going back and forth. And they're like, the car is nowhere in the bowling parking lot. Are you sure? I mean, where else could I have parked it? You were there when I parked it. You were in the car. So they start arguing and they realize, oh my God, our car's been stolen. (laughs) Like, holy shit, our car has been stolen. So they run inside, they call the cops, but they decide 
Our friends and family are here. We've been bowling together. Let's hop into their cars, drive around, skr skr, look for our stolen car. So that's exactly what they do. And they say, oh, wait, it's right there. In front of the, in front of the KFC. Look, that's our car. In front of the KFC. Uh-huh. Well, let's go get these carjackers. Let's go teach them a lesson. Greg is getting pumped up. He's like, I'm going to go punch them in the face. You know, I'm going to get my car keys back. I'm going to punch him. I'm going to show them I'm the man, right? How dare you steal my car? So he walks into the restaurant and he sees a few tables, a couple with kids, one on a date, like they're dressed up, the girls in heels, and then a group of teenage boys. I mean, think about it. Which one do you think it is, right? I think I will at least verify before I take <laughs> <Yeah>. any action. <laughs> so he walks up to the waiter. That's exactly what he does, okay? Greg's oh, a smart okay. dude. So he says, come here. Do you know who's driving the Firebird over here? And he tilts his head outside like that car right there. And the waiter's like, oh, I think it's, it's those teenagers over there. Huh. And he looks over and he's studying their just, their mannerisms. How many The way people? they're talking. Three. Is it the three kids that you mentioned so far? Well, we know it's Ephraim and Joe. We don't know the third one. But he's realizing, Greg is realizing, these kids could have a weapon. I don't, uh, I mean, this is, you know, the bad part of Houston. You just don't know. There's a lot of gang violence. So he's thinking, maybe I should just call the cops. So he calls the cops from the restaurant to tell them, hey, my car is here, right? They go back outside. They wait. Now the boys walk out. The couple's freaking out. Like, what do we do? <sighs> They see the guys lean up against the car, just like leaning up on it, like, you know, those <laughs> Instagram dudes. <laughs> it's his car. Yeah. And they're like, that's my car. You know, they're leaning on my car. And then all of a sudden, the Houston police skr skr into the parking lot, and immediately the boys take off. The police slam the car into park. They start chasing them, okay? Now, Ephraim and Joe stop running. The third boy disappeared into the darkness, and it gets so bad that the police call for backup. They had helicopters in the air. But they still lost him. <laughs> what? Yeah, they in the still world? did not get him. So Ephraim and Joe are under gunpoint by the police. Like, get on the ground, take your hands out of your pockets slowly. Oh and God. the minute that Joe does that, a gun falls out of his pocket. <gasps> so now we've got this high tense, high stakes situation. But thankfully, the cops were able to handcuff the two guys without any incident. They drive them to the station, and they both refuse to give up the name of their third accomplice. So because they were considered juveniles at the time, they get no jail time. They just get a few rules. What are the rules, right? Let me tell you the rules. Number one, you got to attend a peer pressure workshop, right? Because this, this feels like some sort of gang activity. This feels like you and your friend are just pumping each other up like, let's steal a firebird. It's called peer pressure? Yeah, like you got to not fall into peer pressure. You got to, you know, just say no. Oh, one of those anti-peer pressure. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Imagine you go to the workshop. The teachers are like, let's go steal a car. <laughs> <laughs> there was a legal awareness workshop that they had to go to just so they're familiar with laws. Yeah, but I mean, you would think that they would know that stealing a car is against the law at 17, but I guess not. Mm -hmm. There was another one that they can't contact each other. They're not allowed to be friends, right? Mm -hmm. You have to be home by nine o'clock every single day. You have to attend school every single day unless you have a doctor's note. You mm -hmm. must check in with a counselor, blah, 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 blah. These are the rules. Now, this is how crazy the system is. Nobody enforced the rules. Yeah. Not even the parents. So the social workers, that cl they close the cases. Because the parents stopped showing up to the workshops. So there was just a lot of failure on a lot of levels. You know, it's the system, but also the parents because they're financially strapped for cash. They just, how can you take off of work? Yeah. It's either you starve to death, your whole family starves to death, and you become homeless because, you know, you're going to get kicked out. Or you go to a peer pressure workshop with your kid. Mm -hmm. It's just a really tough situation to be in, right? 
I'm going to be honest with you. I am not like a graphic designing queen. This is just the opposite of me. I'm actually really bad at that type of stuff. But because of what I do, I have to, you know, kind of dabble in it. Whether it's for YouTube videos, maybe it's for Instagram, an Instagram story, a post. I have to kind of make it work, you know, put on that hat. And I have found that the easiest way to do it is with Canva Pro. It helps you design like a pro without being a pro. The process of making something beautiful is so simple. Canva Pro is a design platform that empowers you to create and share stunning content in just a few clicks. And when I say just a few clicks, like I mean it. So whether you guys are a design professional or just getting started, designing with Canva Pro is amazingly fast and it's honestly kind of fun. Like you can choose from thousands of professionally made templates that are easy to customize with simple drag and drop features or you can start from scratch if you're feeling extra creative. Canva Pro comes with endless premium fonts, photos, videos, and so much more that just adds a lot of personality. And it's amazing because if you guys run a small business, you never have to pay for another image again because you've got this one subscription. Canva Pro helps you guys stay on top of team projects all in one place. No more misplaced files or tedious back and forth. With Canva's Pro's content planner, you'll actually save time planning, creating, and posting social media content too. You can even pause your scheduled posts and edit them at any time. I suck at colors. Like, I don't know why my brain just doesn't accept colors the way that normal people do. So they have this thing where it makes you stay on brand. They come up with your color scheme and you just kind of stick with it. It makes your websites look so much more cohesive. It makes everything that you put out look so professional. I mean, chef's kisses. So design like a pro with Canva Pro. Right now, you can get a free 45-day extended trial when you guys use my promo code. Just go to canva.me slash rotten to get your free 45-day extended trial. That's C-A-N-V-A dot M-E slash rotten. Canva dot me slash rotten. Now, sometimes Joe and Ephraim would even walk into the counselor's office together. They're like, you know that you guys aren't allowed to see each other, right? The courts didn't care. They were like, well, that's not that big of a deal. The most important rule of all, though, is probably the curfew. Because nighttime is usually when teenage boys wreak havoc on the world. But there was no way of enforcing it. The social worker was overworked. She had 60 to 70 different cases. The only way she could do it to make sure that they were home during the curfew was to call them. Mm-hmm. To call the house and say, hey, is Ephraim home? Can I talk to him? But Ephraim's family didn't have a home phone. So she just never checked. Dang. So then let's talk about a guy named Gary Ford, right? He's in the 11th grade. He's walking home from work. He works at this huge flea market. I mean, training 11th football. grade? Yeah. Is that not like 13? How old is that? 11th grade is right before you graduate. So I would think like 16, 17. Oh, 11th. My bad, my bad, <laughs> my bad, my bad, my bad. Sorry. Not fam- <laughs> too familiar with the... Anyways. So then he works at this huge flea market trading football cards. He's wearing his favorite jacket, the L.A. Raiders, you know? He had mm-hmm. just recently bought it, like one of those fancy ones. He's got his Air Jordans on. And he looks flashy in the neighborhood, right? Mm-hmm. He, he looks like, he looks robbable. So he always carried with him a steak knife, you know? Because you can just, I guess you can just cook them medium rare. I don't know. He just says, I mean, I get it. You know, if anyone comes, this is like peace of mind. This is this is something to defend himself with. Right. And this young kid comes up to him and says, hey, are you part of the Latin Kings? Now, Gary hates gangs. There's a lot of gangs in this area, but he hates gangs. 
no, I'm not part of a gang. Like he was even offended by the thought that this kid came up to him and thought that he was part of the Latin Kings. Like, no, I'm not into gangs. Oh, okay. That's good. Well, then I want your jacket. Gary's like, what? No, I, I'm not going to give you my jacket. Well, no, you have to. And don't even think about doing anything stupid because I know where you live and I'm going to come shoot your mom. So Gary's like, okay, um, calm down. You don't need to talk shit. Like, I'll give you my jacket. And guess what? I'm going to rape her too. So Gary's like, okay, what is wrong with this guy, right? I mean, he's like laughing at me. He's smiling while he's talking about raping my mom. Is, is the guy who's talking also a teenager? Yeah. They're like the same age. So Gary takes off his jacket, balls it up, throws it into the air, and he's about to go run behind a car, right? Which is the best idea. But instead, in that split moment, he's like, I worked months to pay for that jacket. He's Uh an 11th grader. So he has this brilliant idea to tackle this guy to the ground. And when he does, a gun falls out of the guy's pants. Gary's about to grab it, but then a car pulls up and a bunch of dudes jump out and he realizes he's screwed. If they all know each other, he's about to get jumped, if not killed. So he starts running behind like one of the cars, hears these popping noises, you know, bumps into the car. And then he kind of just like stays quiet for a little bit. Uh-huh. And then he sees a group of just a bunch of kids running toward him, high school kids. So he's like trying to go grab his knife and they're like, hey, it's OK, it's OK. They left. What? You've been shot. You've been shot. So this is a different group who had seen the whole thing, right? And he's like, what Gary are you? has been shot. Yeah. He's like, what are you talking about? And he looks down and he realizes he'd been shot. Where? On the shoulder, like the sh- back of the shoulder. Wow. So they call 911. He had to have surgery to stop some of the internal bleeding. They never really could remove the bullets. He was actually shot twice. There's two bullets lodged into him. Oh, man. And the gunman was Ephraim, and he would never be charged with the attempted murder of Gary Ford. And because the police didn't really give, you know, two forks about the kids in this area, Mm -hmm. the kids went on doing what they were doing, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe if something could have stopped. Listen, I'm not trying to say I know the answers because I know absolutely nothing. But if anything, you would think that maybe there was something that could change the trajectory of things. But I don't know. So let's talk about a guy named Jose Acosta. Now, he had traveled all the way from California for his cousin's wedding in Texas. He was excited. I mean, this guy's a dad of three. So he's like, this is my first vacation in so long. Mm -hmm. After the wedding, he's walking with his cousin in a parking lot. And he sees these three teenage boys coming up to them. Nothing alarming, right? But one of them, instead of swerving out of the way, bumps straight into Jose, right into his face and says, give me all your money. Now, Jose, he's mainly fluent in Spanish. He doesn't understand him. Mm -hmm. So he just says, like, what? Like, I don't understand you. But suddenly, one of them pulls out a gun. And as a reflex, Jose throws up his hands. Mm -hmm. And they shoot him. So he falls to the ground. Why did they do that? I don't know. I mean, it seems like they were just trying to kill people. Because, I mean, you'll see. So he falls to the ground. And he's been shot. So he tries crawling under a truck bed. Like, just slowly. And then he feels just this this pain. He said it's like a white hot fire on his upper back. And he had been shot between the shoulder blades. So he passes out. And then the gunman faces the cousin that just got married. Jose's cousin. The groom. 
and shoots him straight in the chest before running away. They never took anything. Is it the boys again? It was Efrain Perez and Joe Medellin and their friend Peter Cantu. None of them would ever be charged for the murder of Jose Ariel Acosta. The cousin died. Yeah, they're both named Jose Acosta, but he died. So let's talk about Peter, because this guy is kind of the ringleader of it all, right? So Peter's childhood seemed normal. I mean, the when you do some digging, it just seems like the biggest problem was that his dad had epilepsy and his mom was just like his biggest advocate. Like his mom loved him a lot. There's no doubting that maybe in a bad way, but there's no doubting it. When he was young, he had a hard time speaking. So I mean, he said that all of the letters jumbled up together in his mind. Maybe he's dyslexic. I'm not sure. But his classmates would just bully him for it. So his grades start shopping. You know, this wasn't a school where they had a ton of resources either. So he never really got educated. He would get beat up by kids at the school. Sometimes he would come home with bruises on his shoulders when he's like in elementary school. And his mom's like, what's going on? Why are you bruising? Well, the teacher did it. What do you mean? Well, when the teacher gets frustrated with me, he just like grabs me by the shoulders and shakes me. Is that true? We don't know. So the mom, she marches into the school and she says, you guys need to do something. And it's alleged that the school said, yeah, no, we're not going to do anything about it. So it's like, oh, my God, poor kid. This is so sad, right? I mean, we can kind of agree that this is sad. But maybe we shouldn't feel that much sympathy for Peter because he is a very interesting kid. So there's this time that he had this little boy's crush on a girl named Amber. He walked her home, got to her front door, you know, thought that they were having this moment. So what does he do? He leans in. He tries Mm -hmm. to kiss her. But she's like not having it at all. I mean, she rejected him. She, I mean, not even meanly. She was just like, oh, I thought we were just friends. (laughs) This is awkward. Um. Just going to go in now. So she just pretty much closed the door on him, literally. And a few days later, he shows up at her house, starts knocking on the door. Mm-hmm. She realizes it's Peter. So she's like, nope, I'm not answering that. Starts banging on the doors. Let me in, Amber. I know you're in there. Let me in. Starts banging on the windows. You better open that goddamn door. So she starts calling her dad, terrified, like, please come home. Like, I'm so scared for my life. And then a window gets shattered mm-hmm. in this process. So he runs off because he's scared that he's going to get caught. Amber's dad comes home and she's telling him, this is the guy. His name is Jeez. Peter Cantu. This is where he lives. So, you know, Amber's dad, right? Rightfully so, storms to Peter's place. Mm -hmm. He's banging on the door and Peter's mom opens it and he's telling, you know, this is what your son is doing, blah, 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 blah. Peter's mom's like, well, that's not my Peter. What are you talking about? Yes, it is. My daughter told they have the same class together. This is what happened. I mean, this happened like a couple days ago. He tried to kiss her. He dropped her. She's like, no, he's just not that kind of boy. Oh, my God. I'm telling you. That he is. Listen, sir, um, Amber's dad. I don't think that Peter was over there. I think that this is a misunderstanding. You must be mistaken because he just would never hurt a girl. So this guy's like, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. That's exactly why the boy behaves yeah. that way. Yeah. So instead, he's like, there is nothing that's going to get through to Mrs. Cantu. Just nothing. Yeah. So he turns to Peter instead and just trying to scare him. He says, I don't want you coming near anywhere near Amber. You hear me? Don't ever come near our house again. Do you understand? Mm -hmm. And Peter looks him in the eye and says, yeah, I don't have to do whatever you want me to do in front of his mom. (laughs) He just straight up is like, yeah, I can do whatever the hell I want. And his mom is like, see, that's not my Peter. My (laughs) Peter is so sweet. It's just the sweetest little child. So in the sixth grade, 
Peter had an English teacher. Yeah, this is like not even the sixth grade yet, okay? Oh my so in the God. sixth grade, Peter has an English teacher by the name of Diane. And she sees Peter just standing in the hallway. Uh-huh. So she's like, Peter, class is starting. Like, what are you doing? You need to go find your seat. Peter, hello. And he's just not listening. So she walks out into the hallway and realizes that there's another student just in front of each other's faces. I'm talking UFC fight down, stare down, you know, just nose to nose. Peter and a different boy. Yeah. So she's like, okay, something's going to happen. They're going to start puffing their chests and like, you know, fluffing their feathers and it's going to be a whole fight. (sighs) So she's like, okay, let me break it up before it gets there. So she's like, okay, come on, Peter, let's take your seat. Like she's trying to be calm about it, not be like, oh my God, what are you guys doing? They ignore her. So she keeps begging like, come on, Peter. I said, let's just take our seat, okay? And without any warning, Peter turns around and pushes the teacher with all his strength. And she's, I mean, just in a state of shock. This is the first time in her life a student had physically assaulted her. But he keeps going, pushes her again. Get out of my way, old lady. Stop touching me and just pushes her. Let me go. I said, don't touch me. While he is literally pushing her down the hallway, she's not touching him. So she screamed. Her students push the panic button inside the class and the students start yelling, help, help, like Peter's hurting her, right? Another teacher runs out, tackles him to the ground and keeps him restrained. That's bizarre. Like, I think the mom really just oh it's just a huge, you wait. huge huge cost of all of this just you wait it gets worse right uh-huh. so they take him to the principal's office and once he was calm he was expelled for the rest of the semester oh, but when wow. the new semester came around he could enroll again mm-hmm. and he would stand every morning before class right at the entrance to diane's classroom just staring at her he wasn't allowed to be in her class because you know they made sure but he would just stare at her. That is so scary. What is going on and for they, a sixth grader? Yeah. And when they brought it up to Peter's mom to tell her all the problems that he was causing, she straight up said, I just, I mean, I just don't really feel like Peter has a problem. I mean, he never acts this way at home. She would tell everyone that he had pretty good grades. She would tell reporters later on. Yeah, I mean, he did pretty well in school. This is not true. Mrs. Cantu, he called our assistant principal a goddamn insert racial slur here. Yeah, well, he's not that way at home. We literally, all of us adults in this principal's office, witnessed your son calling the assistant principal that. Yeah, I understand. But like I said, that's just not really Peter. What kind of behavior is that? (laughs) I mean, I don't know. I don't even know. What kind of denial tactic is that? Like, this is just so bizarre to me, no? Yeah. <laughs> like, at one point, he steals this, you know, bike from this little eight-year-old. Like, literally pushes him off the bike, steals uh-huh. it, brings it home, realizes that his mom put a $10 reward out there. So the thief, what does he do? Peter comes, rolls up with the bike and says, ma'am, I found this at 7-Eleven. Grabs the $10. She's like, wait, where did you find it? Just takes the cash out of her hand and sprints off, right? Uh Now, the police at this point, they kind of trace it back to him. Uh And when the mom is confronted, I mean, she's like, I mean, he was probably trying to fix it or he probably just found it. Like, just genuinely, she is, I I don't even know what to say. (laughs) I would like to know what she said when they found out that he... Is a murderer? Yeah. It's bad. So by the time that he's 15 years old, he's reading at a second grade level. His spelling is at a, at a first grade level and he gets sent to a school for bad kids. 
that's where he meets a guy by the name of Sean O'Brien. Now, Sean had a relatively normal childhood. Um, well, kind of, yeah, he was raised by a single mom. He grew up without a dad. He was diagnosed with asthma early on, but it, it doesn't get bad until way later. Now, Sean's mom gets remarried, and the new husband tells her, listen, there's not enough room in our place for you and your child. You're going to have to send him to live off, live off with his grandma, right? So Ella, his mom, doesn't seem bothered by this at all. She just drops off Sean, leaves with her new husband, and grandma loved Sean. Just, like, loved Sean. The problem was that she loved him too much. Let him do absolutely whatever he wanted. He started experimenting with alcohol when he was only six years old. He's, he starts full-on torturing animals, just stabbing oh. them with knives, suffocating them with pillowcases. And one day he's playing with this giant dresser, pulling out the drawers, really rough with it, broke the bottom drawer. Now what does grandma do? She says, oh, Sean, I'll go fix it. So she walks upstairs, starts fixing the dresser, but it tips over and lands right on her head. Oh. She's knocked out. There's blood everywhere. Sean is the one to find her. They rush her to the hospital. She needed multiple brain surgeries and had lasting traumatic brain injuries. So she could no longer perform at a high cognitive level. So she could literally no longer take care of Sean anymore. She could barely take care of herself. So he's got to back, move back in with his mom and his stepdad that uh -huh. he's barely seen for the past seven years. And these two, they have a new baby together. So it's uh -huh. a lot of emotion. He's like, why would you give me away, but then replace me with this other child who's living a completely normal life? I mean, this doesn't make sense. Mm -hmm. So he starts, you know, kind of doing these. Psychologists actually said that Sean wasn't crying for help. He actually was doing true suicidal attempts. So I think like maybe psychologists look at it differently when you're young. Mm. Some things are a cry for help. Like, please, I need attention because A, B, C, and D is happening. And some things are genuine, you know, attempts. So okay. he, uh, when his grandma came to visit, swallowed an entire bottle of Tylenol. He did. Right in front of her. Uh-huh. To try and commit suicide. Why, why right in front of the grandma? He had a lot of resentment. Oh, I see. You know, I think that he wanted his grandma to save him. And I don't think that he understood that, hey, she's got traumatic brain injuries. She physically can't take care of you. Yeah. Okay. So he's like, what are you doing? Like, I'm living in this miserable place. I hate my life. Like, take me. Then, you know, his grandma came over and he tried to hang himself with his own belt in front of his grandma. And because of her brain injuries, I mean, she really couldn't do anything. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just... It, it there was just miscommunication he didn't realize it's not that she doesn't care it's the fact that she's got this going on and she you know is not performing at that cognitive level anymore so i'm sure that she couldn't be as comforting as he needed her to be so it's just like this really situation and then it only got harder so he starts acting out he starts assaulting girls on the school bus just starts groping them he would throw apples full-on apples out of the moving bus window to try and hit pedestrians this is so dangerous one time he punched his mom so hard she fell back through a glass window <gasps> so she's laying in the grass completely bloody and he doesn't even try to help her he doesn't even say sorry he just smirks at her and walks away this is how all five of them get together. All of them are somewhat connected, but Raul is really the only one that's not necessarily uh, the biggest troublemaker. He was just a little bit depressed because he couldn't get a job, but he hasn't committed any crimes. But he decides, I'm in the market for some friends. All I have is Efrain. 
And so Ephraim's like, well, I got friends. I got Joe. I got John. I got all these friends. I got Peter. Why don't you, why don't you come by and we can all hang out? Now, Raul's like, really? I heard you guys have like a gang, like a black and white gang. Does that mean I'm allowed in the gang? Maybe. We'll see. Do you ever have that feeling where you're laying in bed? It's morning time. Your alarm's going off. You're trying to ignore it. You think to yourself, man, I wish I could just go to work in my comfy pants. Why can't I go to my job in my comfy pants? Well, now, now you can with Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants that are stylish and polished, but they have the comfort of your favorite loungewear. Okay, this is honestly crazy to me. So I got a couple pairs in the mail, right? I start wearing them around and I forget that they look like dress pants. Like I look so polished. I look like I'm about to, I'm about to, you know, go to some meetings. I got a professional life ahead of me, but I felt like I was genuinely wearing loungewear. I mean, it was just the most bizarre feeling, but in the best way possible. So Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants are designed with the fit and flexibility of yoga pants, but they look like professional dress pants. I mean, it was so gnarly that even my sister was like, what is that? I think I might have to steal a pair because, you know, she's working like 13 hour shifts. You just throw a pair on, add on a cute blouse, and you're honestly looking stylish, comfortable for your work day. I got a straight leg. I also got a skinny leg. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I'll like the straight leg more. Maybe it'll be a little bit more comfortable. But those skinny dress pant yoga pants were honestly just velvet on my legs. These pants are made of wrinkle resistant stretch knit fabric. So they look good all day long and you even travel well. They're also machine washable and you don't need to iron. Now, the best part of it is you guessed it. How many times have we sat and looked at each other and said, oh, my God, this has pockets. <laughs> they're, they're comfortable and functional. And if you're like, can I get some more? Don't worry, they've got ultra-flattering tops, skirts, dresses, and more. The dress pant yoga pants are just the tip of the iceberg. So right now, our listeners can get 30% off their Beta Brand orders when you go to betabrand.com slash rotten. That's B-E-T-A-B-R-A-N-D dot com slash rotten for 30% off your order for a limited time. And when you use our special URL, you're supporting our show too, and it really helps. So find out why women are ditching typical work pants for Beta Brand's dress pant yoga pants discover what it's like to be comfortable and confident all the time go to betabrand.com slash rotten for 30 percent off i mean raul was stoked this was like the best day of his life so him and Ephraim head over to peter's place and peter the whole time is like who's this motherfucker? I- i'm raul yeah well you're a loser Oh, um, okay. Well, no, I I could kick your ass. Oh, yeah, you think so? And they're just like joking around like, oh, yeah, you think you could kick my ass? Like just, I don't even know what to call it. I don't know what this is. Just really weird cringe stuff, okay? And he's like, no, you can't join us. You're too lame for us. You're not black and white gang material. Don't, you don't even look old enough to drink. Neither of them were old enough to drink, okay? And so Raul tries breaking the ice. He's like, well, you know, what if, what if, how do I get initiated into this gang? Do you guys have like a process, like an application or something? Well, you think you can fight us? What do you mean? If you can fight every single one of us for five minutes, each back to back to back, and you're still standing, you can be part of the gang. What happens if I don't? You can go tell your mom that you're, you got your ass beat. Okay. Yeah, I can do it. 
let's do it. So this is when they call up the rest of the people, right? So at this point, it was just Raul, Efrain, and Peter. But they start calling up all the boys. They're like, hey, Joe, come on. Let's all hang out. Let's go beat up this guy who wants to be our friend. <laughs> what kind of what kind of initiation? You want to be our friend? Let me punch you in the face first. <laughs> That's a great way to start a friendship. The only way, really. Uh-huh. <laughs> so they start calling up their friends. Uh, um, they There was the Sandoval twins that aren't that important to the story, but they're kind of part of the white and black gang. So they're invited, Frank and Ramon Sandoval, all these people. They start gathering together. Meanwhile, at the same time, in the same part of Houston, we have two girls, Elizabeth Pena. So I'm going to give you the rundown of her childhood, right? She had her mom, Melissa, and her dad, Adolfo, who goes by Adolf. And they were both young parents, 18 and 21 when they had Elizabeth, but they were married. They were so excited to start their family. I mean, Elizabeth was full of personality. That's what everyone describes. She said that whenever the youngest like memory that they have is anytime you try to wash Elizabeth's hair, her dad would do it in the sink when she's young. Mm-hmm. She would scream at the top of her lungs the minute that any a droplet of H2O landed on her hair, her hair follicle. She would just be screaming for hours at a time. And the dad, you know, he's young. He's like 21 trying to like wash her hair. It was just the most comical thing for the family. Family, right so then she grows up goes to high school and she's instantly popular and i can see why i mean everyone describes her as fun loving just goofy but silly and gentle and kind right so she starts kind of getting into trouble initially hanging out with the bad crowd starts experimenting with some drinking some marijuana right sneaking out of the house got kicked out of school and the minute that she got kicked out of school everything clicked in her head like, mm-hmm. this is this is too far. What am I doing with my life? I shouldn't be doing this. Now I now I have to go to this new school and start over. No, I, I need to study. I need to not do this. I'm 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 ruining my parents lives like they're so miserable because I'm causing so much trouble. OK, I'm going to start fresh. So she gets to this new school and she meets this girl, Jennifer Ertman, and her parents were stoked. Whose parents? Elizabeth's parents they're Mm -hmm. like this is the perfect friend I mean Jennifer was just really polite anytime she would come over she would make sure to find both the parents and say hello you know she would always be on time she would encourage Elizabeth to study Jennifer was two years younger like a year and a half but they got along so well things were going so well for the Pena family I mean it got to the point where they went on this massive family trip to Florida had a blast and on the car ride home Adolf was driving and he's looking at Elizabeth and he's thinking to himself he said it was like this fleeting thought what would happen if I didn't have these kids he said okay what (laughs) never thought about that before and he decided okay I need to stop thinking about that So let me tell you about Jennifer Ertman. She was um, born to her mom, Sandy, and her dad, Randy. (laughs) And she was the family's like miracle child. Did not know that they could conceive. They were over the moon. I mean, she was this funny, modest, kindest soul. Even when she got older, she would always play with the younger kids in the neighborhood. Just loved being goofy. Just a curious kid. So when she gets into high school, she's trying to fit in. She's trying to, you know, experiment with makeup. It was, it's usually a really stressful time for parents. Yeah. But not for Jennifer's parents, because Randy only remembers yelling at Jennifer three times in his entire life by the time she was 14. Just well behaved. I mean, she always just went by the rules, loved it. She was passionate about it. It's not like she's like, oh, man, I got to follow the rules because my parents are so strict. 
They weren't even that religious, but she wanted to stay a virgin until she found the right moment, which she believed was after marriage. And she was really proud of these things. She was kind of in like that awkward stage where she was putting on makeup, but she was still wearing her goofy, you know, the Disney character, the Mm -hmm. goofy watch. She had a watch that her parents gifted her. She would wear it everywhere. I mean, she had straight A's. She's this good, trustworthy kid, really close with her parents. So that day, she gets dropped off at her best friend Elizabeth's house. And her mom drops her off and says, remember, your curfew's at 11, right? Mm-hmm. 11, 11.30, I love you. And she just dashes out the car into Elizabeth's. So the two girls, they start their night. They walk to their favorite restaurant, get some tacos to take back to Elizabeth's. And on their way down, a car pulls up. They roll their window down. And these girls, they knew exactly what to do. They're very cautious of strange men, right? But Elizabeth almost instantly starts smiling. Jennifer's like, what? So she looks over at the car and the man says, hey, what are you two cuties doing walking down the street alone? It was her dad. So Elizabeth's like, okay, we'll see you later. Like, we're going (laughs) to keep walking. Like, we'll see you at home. They're just giggling, right? They're having a blast. Like, these are what teenage girls do. So they got their tacos. They're walking. Now, once they get home, they realize... Wait a minute, let's go to our friend Gina's place. She lives in this apartment complex that a bunch of our other friends live in. Uh-huh. Mom, can you drop us off? So Elizabeth's mom drops them off and she says, okay, we'll make sure you got to be back by 11. Okay, mom, love you. During all of this, Jennifer's parents checked in with her multiple times. I mean, she would constantly call if there was a new venue change. She was never embarrassed. She would just say, hey, Gina, can I borrow your phone? She would call mm-hmm. her mom. Like, I'm at Gina's now, mom, love you. So they all start hanging out. The two girls, Gina and a bunch of other dudes, you know, they're hanging out by the neighborhood pool at around 10, 20 p.m. Jennifer's like, hey, Elizabeth, we should probably start heading back because it's going to take us about 30 minutes to walk back home. Uh Right. We have curfew. So they're like, "Okay." they get up from the little loungers and they start talking a little more. Mm -hmm. They look at their watch. Shit. It's 1030. Like, Elizabeth, like, we we should really go now. Uh They're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they walk to the little entrance of the pool. and They start talking a little bit more. You know, you know how it goes. It takes 50 minutes to leave. Right. Mm -hmm. And so finally, at 1045, they're like, we're late. We're going to be late. What do we do? What do we do? So they're like, "Okay, well, if we start walking now, it's a 30 minute walk. We're going to be like 15 minutes late. We're going to be in so much trouble. Okay, okay, that's fine. Calm down. We got to come up with a plan. There's actually a shortcut through the rail tracks, like the railroad tracks. We'll just go there. Now, this is a place where a lot of kids hung out. And when I say kids, I want to say more like high school kids who were up to no good. It wasn't like a playground. I mean, it's straight up railroad tracks and wooded areas. Uh So it's about 1045. They're having to rush. They start walking. As they start walking, there was a group of guys already at the railroad tracks. You guessed it. The black and white gang, whatever they call themselves. And they're drinking all this hard liquor, you know. They're getting drunk. They're starting getting rowdy. Raul is like, yeah, let me fight you guys. That was the day? That was the day. So Raul's like, let me fight you guys. Let's do it. I want to be part of this gang. So Ramon Sandoval, one of the twins, he's first up to bat. The rest of the guys, they form this like human ring around the two. And Ramon goes for five minutes to try to knock out Raul. And he was unsuccessful. So after five minutes, Raul was shirtless, but still conscious. And the crowd's getting rowdier. Like, no, we got to get him good this time. So now it's Joe's turn. Get him, Joe. So Joe jumps in and he starts, you know, fighting Raul. Another five minutes pass and he's still standing. So it's time for the next. So they're like, hey, Frank, this is the other twin. Frank Sandoval. Frank, you get him. And Frank's like, I don't really, I'm not into stuff like this. 
And Peter gets up to Frank's face and says, why? Are you a little, little bits? Sorry. I mean, these are really aggressive words, you know, like mm-hmm. you're a little blah, blah, blah. Just starts making fun of him for being weak. So Sean is the next in this makeshift ring. And at this point, Raul was worn out. He could barely move out of the way when the punch was coming in slow. So Sean hit him multiple times straight in the face. Even with this, Raul managed to punch Sean once in the face. Mm -hmm. And the whole crowd goes silent. Why? Because, I mean, Raul was, you know, he looked beat up. He looked like he was tired. And Mm. Sean was this big macho dude of the group. Like him and Peter were like the the ringleaders at this point. Mm Mm-hmm. And Sean just looks at him and says, I like that. And just goes in on Raul, just loses it. Until Raul is on the ground and can't get up. So they just leave him there and they start walking up the hill to drink some more. And they're just yelling at him. Hey, mother forker, like get your ass over here now, Raul. They're thinking, what are we going to do with him? And Raul is terrified. I mean, what does it mean if you don't get into the gang? So all of a sudden, Peter breaks the silence and says, you're in. You're one of us. And they all start laughing. They all start drinking. Dude, you're a badass. Like, you can hang out with us anytime. And they start sitting there talking about the black and white gang. This is what our gang is about. We all have the balls. We all got to do this. We all stand up for each other. Snitches get stitches. We always have each other's backs. At this point, Frank Sandoval, one of the twins, He had never met these people. These are Ramon's friends, right? Mm -hmm. So he gets a sinking feeling. I mean, he he said he can't really describe it. He just wanted to get out there ASAP. Mm. So he tells his twin, Ramon, he's like, we got to go. Come on, let's go. These dudes have been drinking all day, Ramon. Listen, I I just don't trust them. Mm -hmm. Please, let's just get out of here. I don't want to get in trouble. And so Ramon is like, come on, let's just stay a little while longer. And he gives them a look. So like, apparently this is like something only twins do. Like, Mm -hmm. you just, like, you give them a look and the other twin's like, okay, like, this guy means business. So he's like, okay, well, I gotta go, guys. So they stand up and the whole group is like, you little bitches, like, can't believe you're leaving, blah, 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 right? So they start heading away from the group, the twins, the Sandoval twins. And as they do, they walk past two girls. They didn't say hi. They didn't warn them that there was a group of guys drinking all day just there, you know. They just passed them, said nothing. And as the girls pass the group, Joe stands up and he says, oh, well, look what we have here. And Sean, you know, he can't really see that well. And so he stands up and he's ready to fight. He's like, yeah, they're looking on our turf. You know, I don't know what they're saying. Right. And Joe's like, well, no, no, no. It's a couple of chicks. So right as they cross the path, Joe grabs Elizabeth's breast and she swats his hand away. She says, where are you going? He's like, where are you going? grabs her by the hand and she's like trying to shake him off like what is wrong with you you weirdo and he starts yelling at her you are not going anywhere bitch and yanks her down puts her in a chokehold now the sandoval twins this is where your heart's gonna just the sandoval twins heard the noise heard the screams looked back and it looked like joe is throwing a girl to the ground they did not go back to save the girls they did not find the nearest payphone they didn't even tell someone oh my god they went home and did nothing they would later tell the court that they knew that the guys were probably going to rape the girls and they asked that didn't bother you knowing this Mm -hmm. no it didn't bother me 
All you had to do was make one anonymous 911 call to let them know. You could have just acted like, hi, I was just walking down the street and I saw these group of men that I've never seen before in my entire life. And they were, you know, doing something very suspicious to two women. Please go check it out. You could have done that. Mm-hmm. You could have literally told any other stranger on the street, hey, there's a group of guys trying to hurt these girls. Any other stranger would have instantly called 911. Yeah, and they, the fact that they say, no, I was okay with that, yeah. right? Both of them. They were like, yeah, no, it didn't bother me. I just don't understand. Yeah, I don't understand. So the two girls, you know, they're getting grabbed and dragged to the ground and they're screaming, help me, please help me, somebody help me. Now, they had grabbed Elizabeth first and Jennifer, who was 14, had escaped. So she starts running, but she looks back and realizes that Elizabeth hadn't escaped. So she goes back no. to save her best friend. And this is when the rest of the guys jump in to throw Jennifer on the ground as well. And they drag both the girls down the embankment. And now Joe's younger brother, Uni, who is 14 years old, mm-hmm. was there watching this whole thing take place did nothing to stop it he said that he was in like a trance-like state just watching so joe forced the girls to undress they proceeded to rape and sodomize them as well now the whole time i mean they're yelling just really nasty words at the two girls at first joe and peter were the ones assaulting them and the rest of the guys just looked on nobody said anything nobody even tried to stop anyone nobody even thought hey uh should we be doing this right now nobody even Nothing. If anything, they were grinning while they were watching. Joe even looked at his younger 14-year-old brother and said, What's the matter? You don't want some of this? And he started laughing. Now, this part just gets so sick and twisted, and it becomes important later. During the assault, they would ask the girls for their names and phone numbers. And so, of course, the girls gave fake names and a fake phone number because they're terrified for their lives. Mm-hmm. But the guys would laugh about it after saying like, can you believe they wanted me to call them? That's not even. Oh, my God. So Joe and Sean, Joe was assaulting Elizabeth and Sean was assaulting Jennifer and they yelled switch spots. And they went and switched spots and high fived before. Now, the book is like really graphic and gets into really all the detail because it's in the court documents you know every single detail of this and then eventually Efrain and Raul would join in on the assaults without being pressured at all they all looked at uni and said well you haven't done something come on you need to have fun let loose so he too jumped in and assaulted Jennifer while his older brother watched According to Uni at one point, you know, Elizabeth the whole time, she had not cried one single tear. She was fighting for her life. She was screaming. She was angry. She was pissed. But she looked over at her best friend, at Jennifer, and saw that two men were assaulting her. And for the first night time during this entire ordeal, Elizabeth started sobbing. So according to the testimonies, this lasted over an hour with... Um, each minus uni assaulting the girls at least four times. And then suddenly Peter came up to uni and whispered in his ear, we have to kill them. You know that, right? They saw our faces. Are you crazy? We can't leave behind any witnesses. We have to kill them. So they dragged the girls into the woods and they forced both of them onto their knees. 
And um, Raul grabbed his Sean's belt, wrapped it around Jennifer's neck, and Elizabeth was forced to watch while they started strangling her with it. I mean, Jennifer fought hard. How are they're so young? And there's so many of them. Evil. And the fact that there's so many, yeah. like for some reason, I'm thinking, okay, if there's one, if there's two, they're so young, pure evil, right? But the fact that there's six of them there and not one, yes, not one was like, I can't do this. Yeah. Not one left to get help. Not one was like, hey guys. Yeah. So Sean and Raul start pulling the belt tighter and then the belt snapped. Both of the guys were sweating at this point, but they believed that Jennifer had died, right? So they turn to Elizabeth and they tell her straight up, it's your turn. You guys will see it on my YouTube channel if you guys watch my vlogs, but uh, I just moved to Atlanta, Georgia. And let me tell you, it's humid here. It's got a lot of moisture in the air and immediately my hair noticed a difference. My hair just blew up into like a balloon. It's frizzy. It's out of control. So I'm thinking, okay, I know exactly what to do. I'm going to go to Function of Beauty and I'm going to change my customized formula. That's why I love it so much. If you guys don't know, Function of Beauty is the world leader in customizable beauty, offering customized formulations for your hair's needs. So here's how you get started. You take this quick but thorough quiz to tell them a little bit about your hair type. Is it straight, wavy, curly, coily? And your hair goals, such as lengthen, volumize, oil control. Does your hair get frizzy in the winter? Does it get oily in the summer? You know, when seasons change or when your location changes, your hair changes. So you don't have to keep the formula the same every single time unless you want to. So then next you choose your color and your fragrance or you can go fragrance and dye free. So after the quiz, Function of Beauty will send you your 100% customized formula along with a regimen card with recommendations on how and when to use your products. I'm so glad because I love my Function of Beauty products and I love the fact that like if the seasons change, if I move to a different place and it's humid here, I can just switch up my formula and get my hair back to where it was. So Function of Beauty has also just launched its best-in-class subscriber program, Function with Benefits. Subscribers get discounts on every order, a free treatment, hair mask, serum, or leave-in every four orders, access to exclusive fragrances and colors, and early access to new products and more. So turn your good hair days into a good hair life. Go to functionofbeauty.com slash rotten to take your quiz and save 20% off your first order. Go to functionofbeauty.com slash rotten to let them know that you guys heard about it from our show because it does help. And to get 20% off your order, functionofbeauty.com slash rotten. So they take a shoelace, wrap it around her neck, and they start strangling her while Peter kicks her in the face. Now, Peter, he had always bragged about the fact that he wears steel-toed boots. He broke several of her teeth, knocked them out, broke several of her ribs while they strangled her to death. And at that moment, they heard Jennifer move. So Raul, the new member, he decides, you know what, I'm going to show off. He walks over and calmly stands on Jennifer's throat. And then starts jumping and screaming, the bitch won't die. So they all start to stomp on the girls' bodies until they were unrecognizable. The book states they were all masses of blood, bones, and dirt. 
and that's when they start taking off all the jewelry off the girls. The goofy watch from Jennifer's wrist, the E-ring from Elizabeth's hand, so that Joe could give it to his girlfriend Esther. And they go back to Peter's brother's place. Now, Peter's brother had a wife named Christina, who usually cooked them food, right? So Uh this is Peter's sister-in-law. They all show up and she's like, uh, what are you guys doing here? They all have scratches all over them, blood marks. I mean, they're just bouncing off the walls, like giggling, like it looks like they're high on something. Well, let's just say we had a lot of fun. And they all start laughing. She's like, okay, but what are you guys doing here? Well, we need to shower and we're hungry. Can I use your shower? So Ephraim asks to take a shower and takes off his shirt, throws it at Christina's face. Like, this is how they treat people, okay? And says, get rid of it. So she grabs the shirt, looks at it, and there's blood all over it. Mm -hmm. What did you guys do? And Joe starts bragging right away. So we met these two B words, and we had a fun time with them, you know? They're all laughing, they're giggling, they're bragging. They're like, we did this, we assaulted them, and they start mocking the girls' cries for help. And then they bragged about how they had the blood of a virgin on them. And Christina, the whole time, she was disgusted. She didn't show it. You know, she was a victim of SA as well. And she just, I mean, she was terrified. So she asked, well, what happened to the girls? Ah, well, we had to kill them. What? Yeah, well, we didn't want them to ID us to the cops. And then what? We're going to get into trouble? No way. And then one of them stated, and I quote, we couldn't let those sluts turn us in. So what did you do? Oh, we just left their bodies out in the woods. Oh my God, remember? It was hilarious. One of them even gave us her number. Do you guys remember that? And they start laughing for the next two hours. This is how they're talking about it. Christina is going back and forth from her room, just sobbing quietly and then coming back out. Now that night, Peter's brother, Christina's husband, wanted to cuddle his wife, Christina, right? And she just, she couldn't even look at him. She couldn't even let him touch her. She couldn't even fall asleep. I mean, she's terrified. This is important later. The brother is not doing anything about it either. No, he's just sitting there. While his little brother is like, guess what I did? I just killed someone. So meanwhile, Sandra, this is Jennifer's mom. You know, she wasn't sleeping well. This is how much they trusted Jennifer. They didn't even, you know, they don't wake up during her curfew time because she's that responsible. Mm -hmm. She calls them if she needs help. If not, she's always home on or before curfew. So she wakes up, her husband's still asleep and looks into the hallway and Jennifer's room light is still on. That's strange. You know, Mm -hmm. she always turns it off when she gets home. Checks. Jennifer's not in her room. Okay, that's so unlike her. But maybe Mm -hmm. she's sleeping over at Elizabeth's. Maybe she forgot to call me. So she tries to go back to sleep. But Randy wakes up at 630. And he's like, well, where's Jennifer? Um, I I forget. Maybe she said that she was sleeping over at Elizabeth's. My memory's really bad. So it seems like, you know, Sandra was trying to protect Jennifer from getting in trouble just in case. Uh, Because she really trusted her daughter that much. She was like, no, if if she forgot to tell me, it was an honest mistake. You know, that's how she was thinking of things. Yeah. So all she had to do was wait for the morning to come because Jennifer always woke up, usually around 11 a.m., instantly would call her mom because she always slept over in her jeans, just hated the feeling. So Jennifer would be like, Mom, I need to come home and take a shower ASAP. Mm -hmm. So she waits till 11, no call. So that's when she freaks out and she tells Randy, they rush over to Elizabeth, starts banging on the doors, nobody's home. So they drive over to Gina's place, which is, you know, Jennifer's other good friend. They pick her up and they drive back to Elizabeth's together. And the whole time Gina was shocked. She had never seen Jennifer's dad act like this. Just 
barking at her. When's the last time you saw her? What about our other friends? Where's Jennifer? Yeah. Show me where Elizabeth's room is. So he starts banging on the window like a madman. And the neighbors start coming out. They're threatening to call the cops, you know. Meanwhile, Jennifer's mom is going down Jennifer's phone book calling every single name one by one. There were over 60 names. None of them had heard from Jennifer. And instead of finding peace, it just gave her so much anxiety. So they call up Elizabeth's parents at work. They finally get in contact and they all head over to the police department to file police reports. This, I mean, these families are freaking out. And the police says, well, they probably ran away. Uh. We're telling you that they didn't. Okay, well, what does she look like? Well, she's got brown hair. Here, I have a pictures of her. Take these pictures. Now, nah, just tell us what she looks like. What do you mean? I have pictures. Isn't it easier? Instead of saying she's got brown hair and brown eyes. Nah, we don't need that. So this is when they realize, okay, the police are going to do nothing for us. Mm -hmm. So they call up a local print shop and they said, yeah, we're going to print you thousands of flyers for free. They drove around. All of their friends and family starts helping in the search. A lot of shop owners didn't want these posters on their shop. But the friends of the girls, they would climb on top of each other's shoulders And put them all super high up so no one could take them down. Oh, my God. Elizabeth's dad wanted to search the train tracks, the path that they took. Oh, so he thought about it. So he goes and he walks alongside the train track. And once he was done, something told him, go search in the woods. But he had this gut feeling that was like, okay, never mind. I shouldn't do that. He didn't know why. He was just like, should I go search in the woods? Should I not? He would later say it was a blessing that he did not. Mm. And I mean, it was just bad. I mean, this is all the while that this is happening. These two families are destroyed. The anxiety, the stress of not knowing. I mean, it's getting out of control. Meanwhile, these guys, they're partying. They're drinking. They're having a blast. They're hanging out as if they don't have a care in the world. Except Christina. She was not having a good time. For the past few nights, she had been haunted by nightmares. What if it had been her? What if it had been her mom or her sister and the fact that her husband is not doing anything? I mean, this is making it so much worse. Mm -hmm. So she sits down her husband, pulls off her wedding ring and says, I can't do this anymore. I can't live like this. I can't live knowing what they did to these girls. It's not right. They're a bunch of assholes. And he says, no, they're family. They're your family, not mine. I can't live like this. I can't take it anymore. And he starts getting frustrated. Well, what the hell do you want me to do? Well, what if it was your sister or me or your mom? It could could have been us. But it wasn't you. That's not the point. Why are you protecting them? He's my brother, Christina. We have to do something, okay? What can we do? I don't know. You, you have to call like a Crime Stoppers. They have this this tip line. It's it's anonymous. Just call them. Christina, I, I don't think I can rat them out. No, you don't even have to do that. At least just tell them where their bodies are so the poor families can put them to rest. Please just do something. And so he decided to call Crime Stoppers and he whispered into the tip line, my name is Gonzalez, and I know where you can find the dead girls. Is that his n- real name? No. It's Joe, uh, Joe Cantu. Mm-hmm. What? Dead girls? Where? They're in the woods behind the railroad tracks. 
and he hung up. So the police, they go out, conduct a search. They found nothing. What? So then the next day, well, four days after the murders, the police go back again, just one officer by himself, to do another search. I mean, he's a veteran police officer. Starts searching the tall grass in the woods, sees beer bottles, spray paint bottles, and he sees what looks like this opening in the woods, like tree opening. Mm -hmm. He walks in, really secured wooded area, and he saw a piece of clothing. He got closer and he immediately spotted two dead bodies lying in the grass, clothing everywhere. The bodies had been badly decomposed. Um, Houston, Texas is really hot. This was summer. This was June. Wow. It's humid. Elizabeth's head was nearly detached, wow. either from the animals stomping or from wild animals. Animals had gotten to the bodies. There were maggots. Um, one of them were missing a tongue. One of them were missing eyes. Uh, most of the fat on some of their faces were gone. Their jaws were broken by wild animals. He realized immediately that these were the missing girls. And he needed to keep it hush, you know? He needed to only call in veteran police officers plus the medical examiners to make sure that they don't taint the crime scene. But somehow, as always, the word gets out and a crowd starts forming at the train tracks that they had taped off. So these police, I mean, they're standing there making sure, like, this crowd's forming. And this man comes running, just booking it straight to the officers. It's Randy, Jennifer's dad. Where are the kids? Where are the kids? Sir, you can't head over there. I'm here for my daughter, damn it. No, f*** you. You can't stop me. And he starts running past them. And he just keeps screaming, is one of them blonde? Is one of them blonde? I just need to know if that's my goddamn daughter in there. And the police refuse to let him in. Guess who else happened to be there? Sean O'Brien. One of the killers? And he saw the whole thing unfold he was babysitting some kids in the neighborhood and he loudly in front of everyone said i'm never letting y'all come back here i hope whoever did this they get him i hope they find these bastards and he walked away shaking his head who is he talking to just to nobody the kids that he's babysitting just making sure everyone hears oh what a great babysitter now the police immediately fork it off like literally instantly because they tell the press the identity of the girls without telling Elizabeth's parents first. So they find out on the news that the bodies were Elizabeth and Jennifer and they were heartbroken and furious and almost immediately more trouble. So this whole time for the past four days, you know, they were trying to get publicity on this case by any means. These missing girls, because time is of the essence. The police don't care. None of the reporters or journalists cared. Mm hmm. Until they found out that the girls were dead. And they were all over the family's lawns. And Adolf hated them. Elizabeth's dad said, and I quote, These sons of bitches. I tried to call you to get you to help me find my daughter. You wouldn't do it. Now that you know that she's dead, you want to talk to me? Get your ass out of my face. The police start tracking down the killers. You know, is this a gang? Is this a serial killer? It obviously is more than one person. They trace that Crime Stoppers tip call came from the Cantu house. The guy said his name was Gonzalez. That's weird. So they confront Peter's brother who confesses to everything. 
So the police do a massive coordinated arrest for six men at the same time because none of them can be tipped off or try to run, you know. So Efrain, Joe, Yuni, the 14-year-old, you know, Peter, Sean, Raul, they were all arrested, separated at the station, and immediately they started confessing and pointing the fingers at each other. So much for this friendship. Yuni, the 14-year-old, you thinking, okay, well, maybe he was peer pressured into this. He was so upset that he got caught. He asked himself out loud, God, why did this have to happen to me the first time? The little brother said that? like as if he should have lived a life of crime before he got caught. Like, oh, man, the first time I murdered someone, I have to get caught? Like, genuinely like that. And they're just like, what? The rest of the guys, they were like, yeah, I mean, I was there, but they assaulted her. I was the only one that didn't. I just don't do stuff like that. Yeah, I saw them put the, you know, the belt around her neck. But I just don't choke people. I just don't kill people. But seriously, I only watched. I never helped. So after questioning all six of them, I mean, the real picture came forward that all six of them were directly involved in the kidnapping, rape, torture, and murder of these girls. So the police again told the press before they told Elizabeth's family that they arrested the suspected killers. And that's how they found out that their daughter had been assaulted via the press not the police but elizabeth's parents were thankful for someone christina um the dad would always say i kept thanking that poor girl that turned them in i still praise that woman every single day if it wasn't for her they probably would have never found them so in the courthouse you know reporters are hounding the suspects and when they leave you know peter walks straight into the face of a reporter and the reporter says what happened to you you looked pretty tough in the courtroom. And he says, shut up, bitch. Is that what you call Elizabeth? I called your mom that. What? Did you call, did you kill Elizabeth? If you don't get away from me, I swear to God. And then he tried to break one of her cameras. If they thought they were tough now, just wait till they were in jail. This is going to be a treat, right? They were at the bottom of the food chain. These are child molesters and killers. So the next time there was a court hearing, all of them handcuffed up were escorted into the room and they all had writing scribbled on their backs. Baby killer. Insert slur. I'm a bitch. Wait, 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 wait. Other prisoners grabbed them and scribbled on their back before their courtroom hearing. God, that's crazy. It gets even crazier. Prisoners? in the same prisons, would bake cookies for the victims' families to eat during the execution of some of these people. It gets crazy. What a... Yeah. Are you serious? Yeah, it gets really crazy. So that's part of the culture? Yeah. In the prison? Because a lot of these prisoners, I'm sure there was a lot of just drug charges, drug offenders, you know. So even in the prison, there's a these hierarchy. people are like, what the f*** are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of awesome. Yeah. I mean, well, as awesome as it gets, right? Better yeah. than them being treated like kings. Yeah, yeah. that's what he's trying uh, to say. Of course. So then, you know, as they're waiting for their trial, the families had funerals for the girls. And uh, the families at the funerals were beautiful. The whole community just rallied together. Um, their friends made eulogies. One of the friends of the young girls, I mean, these are all like 14, 15 year olds. She said, don't cry. She's gone on, and she's forever our beautiful guardian angel. And Elizabeth's dad said it was one of the best funerals that he ever went to. It was just beautiful. You know, the singers, the attendants, it was beautiful. Of course, it was the one funeral I never wanted to be at. And journalists and reporters, they flocked to the burial. And all of the family friends stood on chairs on each other's shoulders 
to create this human circle around the grieving family to give them peace in that moment. And Elizabeth's parents, I mean, they didn't know what to do. So they told all the other kids, we can do a meeting at our house once a week if you want, you know. If you guys want to come, I, I don't know what we'll do. Maybe we'll eat some food and talk about whatever you want to talk about. And they just started flocking twice a week. I mean, the house was jam-packed. They would talk about their happy moments with Elizabeth, just really process the grief together. Now, this is an area where these kids were growing up where state and government support wasn't high. <laughs> there wasn't a lot of funds. So this could have really changed the trajectory of a lot of these kids' lives. Because mm -hmm. dealing with grief at that young age can be so de detrimental. Yes. And, you know, the parents, they had no idea what they were doing, but it worked. It helped those kids. Yeah. And they moved on, you know, which is what you should do when you're grieving. So Jennifer's parents, they started going to grief support meetings with other parents who had lost their children. They became a victim's advocate for a little while until they couldn't because it just it, it hurt a lot. Sometimes I'm just in the mood for an exceptional meal. Does that sound fancy? Because I am, you know, sometimes you need to treat yourself. Sometimes you need to, you know, indulge in something that's so high quality, that's got your taste buds just spinning. But you're busy. I mean, you've got a schedule, which is why you need to check out Martha Stewart and Marley Spoon. They deliver quick and convenient meals designed by chefs to be ready in about 30 minutes. I mean, their ready-to-heat meals are ready in under five minutes. If you're feeling extra, okay, let's get it done. I love it because Martha Stewart and Marley Spoon makes great-tasting meals possible every single day of the week. They deliver a variety of recipe options ranging from breakfast to dinner to desserts, you know? And they've got a lot of stuff. They've got classic flavors that you love and new and exciting exciting flavors that you want to discover. Okay, so one of them that I love is the pork and Korean rice cake stir fry. I was a little bit skeptical. You know, I'm Korean. I've had a lot of good Korean rice cake stir fry in my life. And I was like, wow, Martha Stewart back at it again. It was so good. I mean, it was delicious. It was so easy to prep. It was packed with flavor. I mean, the ingredients were so fresh. It was honestly a blast. I love the fact that the subscription is always flexible so you guys can skip or pause whenever that you want and you can even change your address and get d meals delivered to your vacation spot. You don't have to eat out at like random fast food joints. You can make delicious meals on vacation. So whether you guys are looking for kid-friendly classics like pizza and tacos or adventurous, flavorful dishes from around the world, Martha Stewart and Marley Spoon has got you covered. It's honestly been helping a lot during this move because, you know, we're a little bit in a rush. So these ready to heat meals have been flavorful and filling and just so simple, so easy to make, but packed with flavor and make this whole moving process a little bit less tedious. If you guys are tired of rushed meals and boring dinners, let Martha Stewart and Marley Spoon change that. Go to MarleySpoon.com and use promo code ROTTEN to get $100 off over your first four orders. That's $100 of free food just for using the promo code ROTTEN. And trust me, it's a game changer. Everything's delicious. Everything's ready fast and everybody loves food. Go check them out at MarleySpoon.com today. The students at the girls' high school put together a fund to make a memorial, a beautiful plaque and this wonderful tree with their names on it. And they invited the family over and they were like, look, it's here because we're trying to ask people to change their ways and make a difference. And it represents the fragility of life. 
And they said that Adolf and Randy, the two dads, they walked away together, hugging and sobbing. And um, they said, all these kids, they did it out of their own pockets. I can't ask for more than that. All I can do is thank them. So the first to appear in front of a grand jury was Uni Medellin, right? The 14-year-old. He was given a 40-year sentence because he's 14. But the problem is he has the potential to be paroled within four years. So when he switches over from juvenile facility to an adult prison, he could potentially be paroled. Crazy. The family was not happy. I mean, they said, and I quote, how can you tell us justice is working? I don't care that he's 14. He's a sick individual. He's an animal. They should kill the little piece of shit. It's what he deserves. It's what they all deserve. So he soon after agreed to testify on all the boys' trials. This wasn't really part of his deal. But in the case of the other boys, the state would be seeking capital murder. They were out for the death penalty. This would be five death penalty charges for one case. In Texas, this was unprecedented at that time. The boys were either 17 or 18, so the press went crazy for so many reasons. I mean, everyone took this case and ran it with whatever political alliances they wanted to. Urban violence was like the main word. Oh my God, Houston's turning into this like crime hub, raging with violence, urban, inner cities. Yeah, why do you think it's that way? Come on. A small group of gun enthusiasts came forward, and this is like the real crazy kicker. They were like, well, the girls wouldn't have been killed if they had revolvers. Excuse me, what? The girls are 14 and 16. Also, this is sick and nasty victim blaming. And like, what kind of political agenda is this? Like, you just want them walking around with shotguns attached to their little Disney purses? What what are you saying? President Bill Clinton even got involved and he wrote personal letters to the families vowing to take on youth violence and dedicating, you know, time, I guess, and energy to prevent senseless violence in the communities. The families even got letters all the way from Asia to send condolences, you know, and it just it affected a lot of people. The boys in jail got letters, too, from girls. Fans? (sighs) There was a girl who wrote this. The parents of the girls are trying to do everything they can to give you all the death penalty. My friends and I are going to go out and take our asses on strike. All because them fine ass girls you wanted to do. Especially that one chick. She looked good, huh? Finally, the start of the trials. It had been less than seven months since the murders and Peter Cantu would be the first. He was considered the ringleader of it all. Now, the massive courtroom was packed with family supporters of the victims. There was a section for what everyone called the groupies, which were young high school girls that were there to support Peter. At one point, so there were crime scene photos that the the medical examiners had taken of the decomposed bodies in the woods, right? Peter's attorney tried to argue that those crime scene photos of the girls should not be shown to the jury because it would sway their opinion. Can you believe it? What are you saying? So the prosecutor literally said, if it weren't for your client and your client's actions, those photos wouldn't even exist. There wouldn't even need to be a jury. They wouldn't even need to be presented to a jury. And two girls wouldn't be dead. Exactly. So of course, they were shown to the jury. The judge was like, what kind of crack are you on that's ridiculous sorry that was really aggressive but like what kind of drugs are you on to even think that that would work and then so in the defense and what can be seen as a very sick retaliation or maybe an honest mistake i don't know would have these giant blown up pictures of the crime scenes left on their table in plain view of the victims families wow 
And Peter didn't care. He just kept scribbling away on his notepad the whole time. Within 30 minutes, the jury found him guilty of capital murder. And Peter smiled when he was sentenced to death. His groupies started bawling, and they said, and I quote, He's a nice guy. They're just all showing the bad sides of Peter. They're just bringing up all the bad points, but he's a really good person. I mean, can you think about it? Pros and cons list. Pro. One time opened the door for me. Con. Brutally rapes and murders women. Like, I... For the first time ever in the state of Texas, the judge allowed an impact statement. This would be the first time. So now um, it, it's in the, the Crime Act. I, I can't tell you exactly the name of the Crime Act. Sorry, there's a long name for it. But um, everyone gets an impact statement at sentencing, right? So family and friends, they can come out, address the court, address the criminal about the impact of the crime that it had on their lives. But the state of Texas had never done it before yet. Mm-hmm. This would be the first. And so at first they asked Peter, do you have anything you want to say? And he said, nah. He didn't say no. He said, nah. And now it was Randy's turn. And he screamed, look at me. Look at me. Peter looked and gave him a dirty look. And he said, you destroyed a life. You destroyed my life. You destroyed my wife's life. You destroyed the Pena's life. I haven't seen any remorse from you. You're worse than anything I've seen in my entire life. I hope that you rot in hell. And that was the first impact statement read in Texas. And it caused quite a stir, actually. A lot of people called it a circus and defense defense attorneys were like, well, you shouldn't have allowed this in your courtroom, judge. To say that? Yeah. What? They called it a circus. So Randy asked them one question. Have you ever been to a circus and see two girls get killed like that? So they all leave the courtroom. The jurors came out. You know, the family were outside. And finally, the jurors broke down and just rushed to the families of the victims. And they all started hugging. During the rest of the trials, more news came to light. Sean O'Brien had actually murdered a 27-year-old mother named Patricia Lopez, (gasps) along with Peter and Joe Medellin. They had DNA matches at the crime scene. This had been a cold case. She was stranded at a gas station waiting for her husband to pick her up, and she was lured away to a nearby park, and they attempted to rape her and murdered her. So the verdicts start coming in. Guilty, capital murder, punishment, death, you know? And Adolf told the press, our daughters don't have an extra day to live. These guys, they're going to live 10 more years before they die. 10 more years on death row. Why can't they put a belt around his neck? Why can't they stomp them down with their feet? Stomp them into the ground until they are dead. At one point during the trial for Ephraim, he had had, uh, cried one single tear down his face. And Adolf was pissed. He said, if you're going to be a tough guy and kill someone, you better stand up there like you got a pair. So during the last three trials, they were actually being held simultaneously in the same courthouse. So the family had representatives of each victim in each room. And of course, the parents were there. And guess who else was there outside the courtroom? The mother. Anti-capital punishment protesters. I have mentioned before that I am not pro-capital punishment, but I'm also, um, I know that things are so nuanced in life. So I think that with this opinion, I would never bring up a specific case unless the person who ended up being put to death was innocent. You know, I would never go to a courthouse during a murder trial and protest. Maybe protest during another time. 
The book says, it is unbelievable that they come up here and do that, cause these families more pain and misery. This is the wrong place for them to be picking fights for this type of issue. And it was worse because their signs said, don't kill for me. There were confrontations that happened between the group and the families of the victims. So when they came out, the reporters, you know, they had their cameras on and the protesters were like, well, we're just saying we, we like what the law is now. You know, we like the maximum 40 year minimum sentence for anybody that. And then they were cut off by a family member who said, how much time does my niece have? Elizabeth turned 16 three days before she was brutally murdered. You tell me how many years does she have? So they, they keep trying to argue. All I know is that we're against the death penalty in all cases. We don't think that it helps. It just makes things worse. It continues the cycle of violence. And if my daughter was murdered, I'd feel the same way. This is when all hell broke loose. Everyone started screaming, If, if your daughter was murdered, you don't know. And they were just screaming at the protesters. You don't know. It's one thing to say, if my daughter was murdered, I would behave this way. It's another thing to lose someone. And so Ephraim's stepdad was outside the courthouse when the verdicts and sentencing were through. And as the families of the victims walked out, he approached Adolf, Elizabeth's dad, and said to him in Spanish. Now, mind you, most of the reporters were English speaking. And he said, it's your fault. What? So Adolf charges after him and he says, oh, yeah, how in the hell do you figure it's my fault that your son killed my daughter? She didn't do anything to him. What makes you think that you have the right to tell me it's my fault? And he said in Spanish, it's your fault for not raising your daughter properly. And eventually he was escorted away and the families realized this is why, you know, this is why the kids were here today, because of parents like that. One of the defense attorneys came out and said, and I quote, I know that they're upset and they have every right to be upset, but I'll say this and you may not like it, but parents bear some responsibility too. It was so bad that there was a swarm of protesters outside the attorney's place of business the next day because what are you saying? There was this whole conversation around this case about defendants' rights versus victims' rights. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a lot of people were saying for the defendants, they're there because they're charged with a crime. Because it's their choice, their desire, their own personal rules. They chose to do all of these things. Mm -hmm. They chose to kill people. It just caused a bit of stir. So then the family, they would have to wait decades before the executions took place for some of the men. And the rest would never be executed. So Uni was eventually transferred to an adult prison, forced to serve out the rest of a sentence. Recently, in 2020, he was denied parole again for the fifth time. 2006 was the first execution of Sean O'Brien and um, the rest of the prisoners. They baked the family of the victims cookies to eat while watching. Wow. And Adolf said it was the best tasting cookies of their lives. <laughs> he did. Uh, Sean did have last words for the family. He said that he was sorry and the family felt closure. They didn't accept the apology, but they felt like he did mean it. <laughs> and within 20 seconds, they said that he was out cold, that you couldn't even see his stomach moving or breathing. It was the most painless, easy death possible. They said, I wish my daughter could have died that easily. Needle in the arm and going to sleep. I wish that he died the way that she did. And then there was a Supreme Court case that executing a minor would violate constitutional rights. So Raul and Ephraim's case were going to be transferred into full life sentences without the possibility of parole. They would not be executed. The families, uh, they were pissed. 
this is um does not me saying it you know these are the victims families they said they're sick and tired of hearing this idea that that part of the brain is not developed that these kids they didn't know what they were doing because they were too young how many times do we have to go through this 17 year olds minds aren't completely developed but he knew that he was murdering those girls give me a break in 2008 uh joe mendelin was executed and in 2010 peter Cantu was executed I think this case was so hard to research for me, not just because of the material itself and the gruesome nature of the crime and just how young everyone was, mm-hmm. but the fact that like, I feel like most of us are, well, I would think that most of us are anti-capital punishment, right? And I, I've, I always felt like I was, but there were just, I could never, ever be in the presence of these victims' families and say that I am anti-capital punishment. Like I could just never say that to them. It just makes me feel like life is so nuanced and it's just so complex. But then you have cases where people are innocently murdered by the state because they are convicted of a crime that they didn't commit. And then, you know, 20 years down the line, DNA gets better and they realize, oh, darn it, we killed the wrong person. Then you're like, oh, my God, I'm totally against it. But then in these cases, you're like, wait a minute, (laughs) wait a minute, I don't know. I mean, I just hope that this is food for thought. Sometimes when you have a strong opinion, it's nice to try to challenge it. So I think that's kind of what this case was for me. Mm -hmm. Let me know what your thoughts are. And I hope you guys enjoyed this week's main episode. I will be back on schedule on Sunday. I'll see you guys on Sunday. Bye.